Would you pray with me? We praise you, Emmanuel, that you ransomed us from our exile, dispersed our gloomy clouds of night, and put death's dark shadows to flight. We pray you would encourage those of us for whom Christmas is a hard time of year. Remind us that you are ever-present. We praise you that our circumstances do not determine our joy or hope. As our students are ending their semesters with projects and finals, we pray that they would be able to demonstrate the best of what they have learned. And Lord, we pray that you would bless and multiply the work of Teen Challenge and Help One Child as they reach out to the youth in our community. Bless Operation Christmas Child Boxes as they are being sent out all over the world today by Samaritan's Purse. We pray that many people would come to know you through the love of these organizations as they work in your name. Jesus, soften our hearts in this crazy busy season so that we would be like the shepherds and be in awe of your coming. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, and they rejoice before you, as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, and the staff for his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire." For to us a, son, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Lisa, for that introduction. Thank you for sharing with us those pictures as well. Good morning, brothers and sisters. For our second Sunday of Advent, we're continuing our meditation on Isaiah 9-6, and we're continuing to attempt to answer the question, what child is this? The child being, of course, Jesus. What child is this? Who is Jesus to us? Who is Jesus for us? An answer to these questions is offered to us at the beginning of our key verse. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Sean pointed out last Sunday when he introduced this series that the language of givenness in that second line implies that Jesus comes to us as a gift. Jesus is God's gift to us, the gift who inspires us to give gifts to one another at the end of Advent on Christmas Day. Now, I can't talk about gift giving without thinking of my mother. 
My mother has always been an amazing gift giver. She's really the best I've ever met, and by a wide margin. I know there might be a little bias in my saying that, but I'm pretty sure that on any objective measure, she is one of the best gift givers you will ever encounter. She approaches gift giving the way that a detective approaches the scene of a crime. She has trained her eyes and her ears to pick up any possible clue about the people she loves. She even carries around a little notebook to record these clues, just like a detective. If you get up during a meal with her, she's liable to check the tags on your coat so that she knows exactly what size to buy you a replacement. With these clues, she discerns not only what you want, though, but she goes the next step. She also discerns what you need, even if you don't realize you need it. But that doesn't always mean that you're immediately happy with what she gets you. <laughs> For example, uh, my parents visited from Indiana a couple of weeks ago. Before their flight here, my mother sent us a package timed to arrive a day or two before she did. The package did arrive on time, and inside the box was a brand new digital standing mixer. Now some of you might be thinking, oh wow, what a nice gift. And I can tell you that was not my initial reaction to seeing it. <laughs> you see, even though I love to eat baked goods, I am not a baker myself, and neither is my wife, and neither of us had ever even used a standing mixer before. Not that I know of, not intentionally. Neither of us had ever thought to ourselves in the dead of night, gee, I really wish we had a standing mixer. <laughs> but there it was, and soon after there my mother was in the kitchen showing us how to bake loaves of bread. Now the loaves were delicious. They turned out incredible. Golden, soft, fragrant with this touch of sweetness to them. And as my boys took bite after bite out of loaf after loaf, just grinning ear to ear the way only fresh-baked carbohydrates can make a person grin, <laughs> I realized, I realized that what my mother had given us was not just a standing mixer. She'd given us quality time with our children. She'd given us a new family tradition to warm up our cold little house. She'd given us a way to connect with what we ate that went beyond tipping the delivery person. And she'd given us a window into her world as not only the best gift giver I've ever known, but the best chef I've ever known. Her world as my mother. You see, brothers and sisters, the best gifts don't always appear so, do they? This is all the truer when the gifts are aimed at our needs and not merely at our wants. Did we need a standing mixer? Did we even want one? No, but we did need the love and the joy and the warmth of that afternoon and, I hope, of many more to come. The best gifts don't always appear so, and that is true even of the gift of Jesus. Over 700 years before he was born, in the days of the prophet Isaiah, it was clear what the people of Israel wanted from God. The second half of the 8th century BCE was a turning point for the people of Israel, as told across chapters 6 through 8 of Isaiah. Under the faithless leadership of King Ahaz, the Israelites continued their long descent into rebellion against God. Rather than look to God, they pursued the guidance of mediums and necromancers. And this was the last straw. The Israelites had broken their relationship with God 
too many times, in too many ways. The time for judgment had come, and God knew who he would use to execute it, the Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians were known and greatly feared, as we heard last week. They were known and greatly feared for conquering nations and then scattering their citizens across their empire in order to erase any memory of that nation's existence. This is what awaited the people of Israel. In the words of Isaiah, in Isaiah 8.22, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Israel, the nation God himself had made for himself, this nation would be unmade. The people of Israel would be reduced to what they had been centuries before, before the exodus from Egypt, a people swallowed up by and subservient to a greater power. So what did the people of Israel want? What did they need? A hero, a deliverer, a rescuer, a defender, a new Moses, a new Joshua, a new David, or... Ideally, really all three rolled into one. And that is what God promised to provide for his people. Despite the fact that they had earned for themselves a punishment they were about to receive, before the Assyrians even arrived, God promised that this would not be the end of Israel's story. Even before the darkness fell, God promised that one day he would lift the darkness with the light of his saving power. Isaiah 9, 2, and 3. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. And what would be the cause of this joy? The total defeat of their enemy. Isaiah 9, 4, and 5. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The oppression of Israel's enemies symbolized by their yoke, their staff, their rod, this would be utterly broken and all the tools and implements of war represented by the boot of the tramping warrior, the blood-stained garments, they would be burned. And in their place, peace would finally be won from the defeat of Israel's enemy. And at the head of God's army, Leading the charge against the enemy of God's people would be someone they would call mighty God, Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called mighty God. Yes, there are three other names by which this son would be called. But the name mighty God would have landed on the ears of Isaiah's hearers in a particular way. The phrase mighty God in modern English does not quite capture the original Hebrew, though it does a decent job. Mighty God reflects the simplicity of the Hebrew text. That part is just two words. But mighty warrior God, or the divine warrior, capture its meaning better. And I'm not just saying this as a Golden State Warriors fan. This is biblically accurate, brothers and sisters. 
The exact Hebrew phrase is very rare in the Old Testament. We don't find too many parallels of this exact construction, but the image of God as a warrior king fighting on behalf of his people, this is not rare at all. You may remember in Exodus 14, 14, on the shore of the Red Sea with Pharaoh and his army closing in, Moses encouraged the people of Israel saying, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. And indeed, the Lord fought for them, opening the Red Sea for them to pass through, but closing it on Pharaoh and his army. Moses repeated this encouragement throughout the book of Deuteronomy as the people of Israel prepared to enter the promised land and go to war with the Canaanites. Deuteronomy 20, verses 1 and 4. When you go out to war against your enemies, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. And after God made good on these promises and defeated Israel's enemies and established them as the greatest kingdom in the ancient Near East, later generations of Israel sang psalms about their mighty warrior God, such as Psalm 44. Oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, you with your own hand drove out the nations, for not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face for you delighted in them. When Isaiah promised the people of Israel that their mighty warrior God would return to save them from their enemy, Isaiah's hearers would have known what to expect. The image of God as a warrior king fighting on their behalf was not new. It was what Israel wanted. Indeed, what they felt they needed. They needed the mighty warrior God to come and rescue them again. So in all likelihood, when Isaiah shared the good news of the coming Davidic warrior king, And when he assured his hearers that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, in all likelihood, Isaiah's hearers would have rejoiced, just as we sang. If you'll forgive the anachronism, they would have felt the way we feel in the days before Christmas, looking forward to this child who would be born, this son who would be given, this child, this son who would grow to become their mighty warrior God. All Israel had to do was wait. And so they waited, and they waited, and they waited. They knew what to look for. Isaiah had told them that the child would be born to a virgin somehow, and they knew the son would be of the line of David. And over the years, sons were born, and these sons became kings, and these kings fought for Israel, but none were born of a virgin. And whatever victories they managed to achieve often died with them. Israel waited so, so long. And in the course of their waiting, Assyria rose and then fell. And then came the Babylonians, and and they rose, and they also fell. And then came the Persians, and after the Persians rose and fell, then came the Romans, and there was still no warrior king born of a virgin into the line of David, no mighty warrior God to save God's people. Finally, after roughly 700 years, 
Jesus arrived. A child was born to the virgin. A son was given to the Davidic line of kings. And this child, this son, he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with men. And as he grew, he took hold of his calling to be about his father's, God the father's business. And the prophet John the Baptist affirmed that he was the one Israel had waited for. And he began teaching about the kingdom of God and casting out demons and healing the sick and even raising the dead so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. And the people of Israel knew the next part of that passage. They knew what came next. The total defeat of their enemy liberation from oppression, true peace for the people of God, the hope that Jesus was a long-awaited child to be born, the foretold son to be given. It grew with every step Jesus took. People everywhere began to ask, could this be the one? Could this be our mighty warrior God who defeats, who is it now? The, the Romans, that's right. And so they waited to see what would happen. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited. But Jesus did not raise an army to fight the Romans. In fact, Jesus told people to give to Caesar what belonged to Caesar, whatever that means. And Jesus did not claim the throne of David in Jerusalem. Instead, when he arrived there, he picked a fight with the Jewish religious establishment running the temple. And Jesus did not even want his disciples telling other people he was the one they had waited for. Almost every time anyone was able to figure it out, he urged them to tell no one. John the Baptist was one of the first to start asking questions. Are, are you the one? Or should we be looking for someone else? Jesus' own disciples got more and more confused every time he stayed their attempts to rain down wrath on their enemies. Peter even tried to rebuke Jesus when Jesus declared that he would be handed over to the authorities to be killed. And when Jesus' prediction started coming true, when Judas and his thugs ambushed Jesus and his disciples that night in Gethsemane, instead of fighting back, instead of leading the charge against the enemy before them, Jesus simply let the thugs arrest him. Now, Peter wouldn't have anything of it. He tried to save Jesus. In Matthew 26, 51, we read that after Judas sealed his betrayal with a kiss, Peter stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus would not stand for that. Matthew 26, 52 to 54, when, then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? In other words, Peter, I could fight the fight you want me to fight. I can ask my father and he would provide me an army like you've never seen. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled unless I am arrested? 
Now, I have a good idea. I don't know for certain, but I have a good idea what was going through Peter's mind at that moment. Which scriptures, Jesus? What are you talking about? What about Isaiah 9-6? How can this scripture be fulfilled if you get arrested, if you die? How can you be our mighty warrior God? How can the mighty warrior God use you to defeat our enemy if you're dead? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? Which scriptures are you talking about, Jesus? Now, it would be at least three days before the disciples understood that in order for Jesus to fulfill the scripture of Isaiah 9-6, he had to also fulfill the scripture of Isaiah 53. But he was crushed for our transgressions. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Out of the anguish shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You see, John the Baptist was right when he pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The disciples were right when they said to one another, this could be the Christ. The people of Israel were right when they welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem with singing and dancing, crying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Our God saves glory in the highest. But John, the disciples, the people of Israel, they were all wrong about who their real enemy was. It was never just about the Assyrians or the Babylonians who took their place or the Persians who took theirs or the Romans who took theirs who were only the latest empire in charge. It was never just about raising an army, liberating the Holy Land and establishing a new Israel. No, the real enemy facing the people of Israel and all the people of the world all throughout time was not and is not flesh and blood but the sinfulness that has taken root in our flesh and in our blood, the sinfulness in each of us that earns for each of us eternal death. Sin and death, this is our great enemy. The enemy, Jesus, the mighty warrior God, came to fight. And the only way to fight this enemy was for the sinless and the deathless to claim our sins as his own and to die our deaths as if he had earned them himself. And so that is what Jesus did. Jesus let the thugs arrest him. And Jesus even healed the ear of the man who was struck. And Jesus let the Jewish religious establishment convict him of crimes he did not commit. And Jesus let the Romans strip him naked and beat him bloody. And Jesus let the people of Israel demand his death for failing to satisfy their wants, for failing to meet their expectations. And Jesus let himself be crucified. Jesus let himself die so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Our mighty warrior God achieved victory, not by sword and arrow or even by vote and ballot box, but by cross and by nail. Not wearing a crown of gold, 
but one of thorns, not waving a banner, but receiving a spear into his side, as Paul would write to the Colossian church many years later, and you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When John the Baptist, the disciples, and the people of Israel welcomed Jesus as a gift from God, they thought that he would give them all they wanted. But when they opened their gift, they did not find a general ready to lead the charge against the Romans, They did not find a Davidic ruler seeking a crown and a throne. No, when they opened their gift, what they found was a cross. And our mighty warrior God used that cross to meet our deepest need, a need we didn't even know we had. Brothers and sisters, the best gifts don't always appear so. Sometimes the gifts God gives us aren't what we want or even what we expect from him. Sometimes we come to God wanting him to solve a problem for us, a painful conflict in our family, a difficult situation at our workplace, a a bill that just keeps growing beyond our reach to pay, an unrelenting illness, an inexorable trend in our community, a threat to our society, a danger to our world. We come to God with a problem, and we want and we expect God to not only solve our problem, but to solve it the way we think it should be solved. Lucky for him, we've already figured it out. Just change this person's mind, God, and problem solved. Just get rid of this manager, God, or just give us a new doctor, God, and problem solved. Just give me a little more money, God, and problem solved. Just change our schools. Just change our city. Just get these people elected. Just send those other ones to jail. Just fight for us, God. Fight for us. For the love of God, fight our battles against our enemies with the tools that we've made for fighting. But God doesn't always give us what we've decided we need from him. And it isn't because he's cruel and withholding. It isn't because he thinks that we should be able to solve our problems by ourselves. And it isn't because he's waiting for us to earn it from him. No, it's because he knows better what we need than we do. My mother is a great gift giver. She sees the clues and she can piece together a person's deeper needs, but but brothers and sisters, our God is the greatest gift giver. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. And he sees past our wants and he sees beyond our expectations. He sees deep into what it is that we really ultimately need from him. And the gift of Jesus is the ultimate proof of this. We so often misidentify what our problem really is and who our enemy really is. More often than not, our real problem isn't the bad situation we encountered earlier in the day as genuinely problematic as it may have been. And more often than not, our real enemy isn't the person in front of us or arguing with us from the other side of a computer or voting differently in the booth next to us. No, even as genuinely villainous as they may have behaved, that's not always our enemy. Not even sometimes. 
No. Our problem, our enemy often is ultimately our own guilt, our own shame, our own woundedness and hurt that is in desperate need of healing, our own fears and insecurities that control us in the way that we approach the people and the situations we encounter every day. Our problem, our enemy, is ultimately our sin and the eternal death it earns for us. And Jesus, our mighty warrior God, came to save us from them at the cost of his own life. And this, brothers and sisters, is the love of God for us. He didn't merely give us what we wanted. He gave us what we needed. Of course, one day Jesus will return to solve the problems and fight the battles that remain to be solved and fought. One day our mighty warrior God will put an end to all oppression, to all violence, to all evil in all its forms. And in place of the broken human empires of this world, our mighty warrior God will establish his own kingdom that the scripture of Isaiah 9-7 might be fulfilled. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Brothers and sisters, there will be a second advent. There will be a second coming of Christ. And when he comes, he will fulfill all that remains to be fulfilled and his victory will be complete. But... His victory has already begun, hasn't it? In this time between the advents, this time between the first coming of Christ and the second, we can already live in the victory of our mighty warrior God. We can already live, brothers and sisters, in Jesus' victory over sin. We can live today in the confidence of knowing that our sins have been forgiven, that our debt to God has been paid by Jesus' death on the cross. We no longer have to live in guilt or in shame. We no longer have to live in regret and self-accusation. We no longer have to hate what we see in the mirror, repress what we remember of our pasts, deny the brokenness we know is still within us. No. We can receive the spoils of Jesus' victory at the cross, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of of God, the love of God, and as a forgiveness, as a forgiven, beloved, adopted children of God, we also receive His Holy Spirit. And through His power, through His grace, all we need to grow into what we were meant to be. We can truly be ourselves, we can truly be God's beloved. So, beloved, live in this victory won for you by your mighty warrior God. And beloved, we can live in Jesus' victory over death. With our sins forgiven, we have no need to fear death. Our bodies may fail. Our spirits will live on. And one day they will be clothed in new bodies created to experience the glory and the goodness of God forever and ever and ever. So what is there to fear in this life? Illness and injury may grieve us for a moment, but they do not have the final word on us. No, our stories all end in eternal life, so why should we live in fear? Why should we live in insecurity and doubt, in self-centered, scarcity-minded survivalism? 
Why shouldn't we be generous with our lives, generous with what we have, generous with our time and our energy and resource until we arrive at our eternal home gloriously spent and beautifully exhausted and utterly victorious over death? Beloved, live in this victory, one for you by your mighty warrior God. And lastly, beloved, let us proclaim Jesus' victory to the people of this world. The good news of Jesus' victory deserves to be made known to all. As it came to us freely, let us also share it freely with the world around us. This is good news. This is euangelion. And in spreading the good news of Jesus' victory over sin and death, let us become a people, a people known for the hope we share and not the hate we bear. Let us be known for the joy we offer and not the judgmentalism we harbor. Let us be known for the crosses we carry in love for others, not the crosses we hang our enemies on. Let us be known for the love we've received, the love of our mighty warrior God, the greatest gift giver, and may he get all the glory. I'd like to invite our praise team to return to the stage to give us an opportunity to do just that as we sing of his mighty saving power. Beloved, this is God's gift to us this Christmas, victory over sin and death because of our mighty warrior God. It may not be what we want or expect. It may not be at the top of our Christmas lists. It may not be the thing that comes to mind when we ask what is it you truly need right now. Brothers and sisters, it's better. It's what we need more than anything else. So let us receive this gift well and live in Jesus' victory. Amen. Receive now this benediction. As people who have been walking in darkness, as people who dwell in a land of deep darkness, let us step into the light that God has caused to shine upon us, the light of the love of God in Jesus Christ who wins us our victory over sin and over death. Let us step into that light this week and to share that light with one another. Be blessed and be well. God bless you.